0: We're moving from theory to practice on the show today, and to get us there, I have not one but two guests. I'm joined by Ben Krasnestein and Dr. Jody York from Kalara Capital. They're an impact investing powerhouse, and today we're digging into the models and frameworks they employ, but more importantly, how their impact approach can help to both drive down greenhouse gas emissions while also boosting financial returns. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the business of sustainability, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions can have an impact. Ben's founder and managing director of the investment management firm. He was born and bred in Melbourne, and after a stint in legal practice, he found himself drawn towards business, investing, and doing deals. He opened the doors to Kalara in 2017. And Jodie York is Chief Impact Officer. She joined the team in 2020. She's originally from San Francisco and she found herself in Melbourne via a stint in New Zealand. These two are the ideal guests for this, the third episode in my podcast series exploring the current inflection point that's seeing impact, measurement and management frameworks harmonize and consolidate. And for investors, that means it's now easier than ever to use impact principles when allocating capital. I've spoken to Dean Hand from The Gin and Sarah Gelfand from Bluemark previously, so please do go back and listen to those. But today, we have a team of impact practitioners. Kalara has recently published its annual impact report and we will dig into the very progressive models they use to compare their impact performance to a global baseline. As well as the impact hurdle that commits the firm to reduce CO2-equivalent emissions by 15%, with a hit to the firm's carry if they don't achieve it. This was a really great conversation packed full of practical insights about leading impact practice in Australia. And to go even deeper on the topic, this episode will be part of my IMM special report. It's coming soon, so sign up to my mailing list at johntredgold.com so you don't miss it. A quick disclaimer, I do need to emphasize that nothing in this podcast is financial advice. Please do seek your own professional advice before making investment decisions. All right, enough out of me. Here's my conversation with Ben team and Jody York. Here we go. Ben and Jody, great to have you on the show. Thank you for being with us today.
1: Lovely to be here, John, thank you.
0: Thanks, John. Thanks for all your support. Love it. Now look, Ben, I'll start with you because I wanna talk about beehives. Well, we spoke recently when you were in Sydney and you told me about how well your bees were doing and and that the hives were stacked with honey. And what I want to know is, is are there any similarities there with, with how you
2: run the Kalara office? Is there a queen bee? Uh, that's a tough question. There's probably a few queen bees, which is actually not a bad metaphor because we operate quite a flat structure amongst all of our senior investment people and and impact people and finance people in the business. So it's an interesting analogy. Uh, We want to create opportunity, we want to create wealth, we want to create significant climate outcomes, and we're busy doing it. So there's a good analogy for the for the worker bees. And we're all happy to be to be both. So it's actually quite relevant where you need a queen bee, we're happy to step into that role and and own what we do and, and lead from the front. And at the same time, everybody rolls their sleeves up and gets cracking on on the mission and and the outcomes. And it's sort of, it is analogous to the mission that we're on at Kalara, where we want to be providing solutions that assist our natural systems to regenerate and replenish, and albeit our core goal is around GHG emissions, they're very interrelated concepts, Uh, and so if we can assist in any way we can for the planetary systems to be able to regenerate and start functioning at full capacity again, like we try to do with the beehives. If we can do that at Kalara, we'd be pretty happy.
0: Yeah, and tell me about the genesis of the firm. Why did you choose a, a private
2: equity fund to, to try and achieve those goals? The firm is an investment management business that was set up to try and achieve uh, a, a broad range of outcomes when it comes to decarbonisation and solving for some of the climate challenges we face. One product that we can then put behind that is a, is a private equity fund there are other things we can do to achieve the climate goals. We want to seek the financial product or financial instrument that we use at a high level we're agnostic about because you can do lots of good things with debt. You can do lots of good things with equity. You can do lots of good things with development and building clean energy projects, which we do on the other side of our our business. And it's about then making sure we can scale as much capital into these products that we put into market. So the vision and the aim of the firm, if you like, was to create investment product that enabled capital to flow to then achieve these outcomes that we're seeking, both from a commercial point of view and an impact point of view. And the first thing we did was some private equity syndicates and debt syndicates, which then led to the Kalara Growth Fund, which is our first kind of flagship fund. We have other plans for what the next one might look like, as well as what as I said earlier, is happening on the renewable energy development side of the business, and that'll probably, you know, there's probably a three-year plan there. Beyond that, we could very well do other things to achieve the outcomes we're seeking.
0: And rolling back to that mindset when you did start the firm, what was your philosophy, I guess, back then, or what was your vision of impact investing? And, And I wonder if it's changed since then along with the industry.
2: I don't think our vision and mission around impact has changed. It's probably, sorry, it probably has evolved from where we were in terms of broadly speaking about climate outcomes to where we are now, quite fully focused on three or four key metrics within the climate world or the climate solutions space. We have chosen to hone in on greenhouse gas emissions, which are then underpinned by certain other uh, criteria and metrics, which Jody can touch on in a minute. So my view of impact investing and and has it changed and has the industry evolved uh, to that part of your question? Look, no doubt it has. If we go back to sort of 17, 18, when we started nurturing this um, business into reality uh, and, and obviously prior, uh, we found this, I think, a significant shift where two things have happened. One, people, investors have been more comfortable with labelling things as impact and then channeling funds into those opportunities. We still, in relation to that concept, very strongly argue that Impact is a lens, not an asset class. And we will keep talking about that because it will take longer for people to, I think, understand what that means. It's not, I don't think it's rocket science to understand what it means. It's just um, using that analogy or using that reference because you can have a, a green impact deal when it comes to commercial real estate. You can have a green or impact deal when it comes to private equity, like we're doing. You can have a, an impact deal with private credit, uh, listed equities, even where you put your cash. So, It's important to think about it that way. So going back to your question, I think it's evolved from where we were when we started Kalara to now in that people understand that concept a bit more. Uh, And I think the second thing is uh, for us, um, we've seen an evolution in the way that decarbonisation and net zero commitments are being uh, adhered to or, or, or playing out. What I mean by that is, you can use impact as a proxy for decarbonisation or vice versa. And therefore, there are easily identifiable concepts that investors can relate to without necessarily having to label it as such. I think that's really important. Um, Where you talk to investors and you use the words impact or green investing or sustainable investing or social enterprise, they often get bundled together, put into a bucket where people say, well, that's got to be a discounted return still or I'm going to take that off my foundation uh portfolio or my foundation allocation rather than my pure commercial allocation from an investment point of view and so we want to try and break down those barriers yeah. so that's also changed for the better for us i think it's become a lot easier to describe to people what we're trying to do from a climate point of view decarbonization point of view net zero point of view we don't have to say to people you have to be into impact investing to do it anymore and i think that's a really important evolution i think as it relates to planet there's certainly been an evolution around what it means to invest for planetary outcomes, so that's that's a long way of saying, John, that yes, things have definitely evolved and are evolving for the better. Life is becoming easier in describing what we do and getting allocations from more mainstream investors into our product. So that's probably where the proof lies.
0: And Jody, uh, I will roll back and we'll talk about your background. But but following on from Ben's comments, there, what do you think about wearing this label of impact today and how that's changed in recent years?
1: I think impact has become a lot more mainstream and there's still quite a bit of confusion around it about you know whether it's whether it's the same as ESG or um you know what I what I often tell people is you know that that ESG is is retrospective right you look and you say did we did we do harm impact is about strategy it's about what do you want to do and then you integrate you know you integrate that into strategy so that you are delivering that it is a forward looking approach um, but you don't you don't have to be interested in that component for it to be a good investment you know if I serve you a delicious meal um, you can engage with it at that level if you're vegan you can get excited about the fact that that meal happens to be vegan <laughs> but you don't have to you don't have to be a vegan to appreciate that um, I think it's a little bit the same in in impact investing particularly in the space that we're working in uh, you know climate, Investing in a lower carbon future is just good sense uh, because if we're not investing in a lower carbon future, we've got a lot of uh, we've got a lot of other problems. So investing in the kind of world that you want to live in, if your goals are successful, uh, I think puts a lot of um, puts a lot of momentum behind uh, the kinds of things that we are currently investing in. Um, so you're not, you, you are welcome to do it because you are highly values aligned. You are welcome to do it because you are impact agnostic, but it's a very solid investment with, you know, strong, incredible market drivers. And you're welcome to do it because you are deep into the impact space and want to engage with, with the data, want to engage with improvement, want to be able to look across invest investment managers and say, how do, how do these investments stack up from an impact perspective and from a financial perspective? You know, a lot of investors aren't actually, are not in the habit of thinking about what their money is doing in the world, uh, but all, all investments have impact. It's just a question of you know, whether you measure it or not, all investments in the world are having impact. So what impact is your are your investments having in the world? Is is your money acting in alignment with the values and the future that you want to see?
0: Yeah, I think that's really important. And and, and Jody, I really appreciate you know the depth of, of your thinking there, and and want to wind back to how you came to it. You're head of impact there at Kalara, but previously you were you were an academic in California. Tell me about how those two fields complement each other, and then this term pracademic. That's, that's still, one
1: that I often, still... that I often use, um, to kind of explain where I, where I position myself. Um, a lot of still so I'm this, a... <laughs> still
2: dragging it <you> across the <laughs> investing side, John,
1: but it gives me excuse to still be very nerdy about some things. Um, the, uh, so I have, I'm a sociologist by training. Um, I did a PhD, um, at Berkeley, uh, worked with, um, uh, you know my, my first uh, professional things I was doing was actually squatting in the dirt talking to farmers about natural resource conflicts um, but the you know the, the theme there was was the same as it is now which is about making better use of information to tell evidence-led stories that allow you to engage your stakeholders and have people understand within their own frame of reference what you're trying to do. Um, so to me those are the those are the same things but I sort of spiraled into the finance system uh, I've been on all parts of the impact system you know I've, I've been with community organizations I've worked with a lot of social enterprises uh, I've done quite a bit of uh, most of my academic research is actually around things like sustainable business models which is the term that we use for business models that create value for multiple stakeholders in a variety of financial and non-financial forms you know so how do we use? enterprise as a force for good? And how do we use capital as a force for good? So, you know, I bring that back into what we're doing, what we're doing here. And, um, you know, when you think about, I think a lot about, about systems change and the beauty is that, you know, our investors don't need to understand systems change. They can engage with it if they want. But when you're thinking about changing systems, you look for where the levers are for change and you look for what is driving the, the force In the system. And so capital provides an enormous lever for change uh, because we get to choose what what investments are supporting, uh, which is one of the reasons that, uh, you know, in addition to doing to looking at things that are directly reducing um, significant sources of emissions and Uh, protecting and um, enabling existing natural carbon sinks. You know, we take a step back from that and look at the drivers. One of the things that's a key driver of emissions is actually the material footprint of stuff, right? Everything, Everything we consume, every good, every service has a level of embodied energy. And the more embodied energy it has in it, the bigger the climate impact throughout the entire value chain. So one of the you know, major areas that we're investing in is things that enable more end users, you know whether those are businesses, whether they're consumers, to consume products and services that have lower embodied energy because the multiplier on that is absolutely massive, right? We have a big focus on scope one and two emissions in the, in the measurement space because those are the most easily measured, the, you know, the, the things you have the most immediate control over in a business but the fact is a lot of most, most of the impact most of the carbon impact that a business has is in its value chain um, which means that somebody else's measurement is what enables you to understand your own carbon footprint <laughs> so a lot of the businesses that we're that we're looking at are things which enable their their uh, end users to understand that and to make lower carbon choices you know make the kinds of choices that we will need in the future that we actually want to live in because i don't want to live in a 2.7 c temperature increase that's not a very nice that's not a very nice future
0: (laughs) oh look that's right and i think and i think your academic career is similar to the way we've had decades and decades of climate scientists running the numbers we have we have this big deep academic approach but Global emissions are still going up, and I think turning those academic insights into investable opportunities to funding technology—that's where the rubber hits the road. And so, let's dig into the the impact thesis and, and some of the details of how you guys are doing that at Kalara. Yeah, what's the specific change you're making there?
1: So I think about what we're doing. You know, our kind of theory of change r- involves three elements, right? So it's You know, directly reducing, as I said, directly reducing direct emission sources and uh, enhancing and protecting natural carbon sinks. Right. So every time we clear every time we clear land to expand meat production, for instance, you know, this is one of the things that's happening in the in the Amazon that's reducing the amount of natural carbon sink that is basically the how, how the how the earth as a natural system absorbs carbon and puts it into other things. Right. So we are breaking down our ability. While we're also putting out a bunch of emissions, we are breaking down our ability to take those emissions back in. That's a that's a bad feedback loop. Um, so there's that element. But through the things we're investing in, we want to change, we want to change production norms, you know, that that move more, the lower carbon goods and services are more normalized and there's a lot of forces doing that. So we're kind of stepping into a thing that is going to happen anyway. And we want to make sure there's good products and services in there. Um, and then the third thing is we want, we want to move markets, right? We want to, we want to actually change the behavior of end users such that lower carbon goods and services are the normal thing that you reach for. Um, and you know, we're seeing this. We're seeing this from a variety of from a variety of directions. Uh, but one of the one of the challenges is that transition can be difficult for for you know maybe for households or for um, uh, small small and growing businesses. Not everybody has a whole R and D department. So doing the things that makes that transition easy for end users. Has a huge multiplier because you get more people involved just through, you know, where they're spending their money and what they're consuming. More people involved in building that path to a lower carbon future. Just making making climate smart choices, enabling climate smart
0: choices. And Ben, digging into the investment approach at Kalara and, and how you source deals and find them, obviously led by that impact thesis. But do you find you go out looking for the deals, and then that can can shape the thesis or is it more you set yourself some blinkers of, of these are the issues and we're going to find companies that, that
2: that fit well yeah i mean we set our guardrails on our mandate that include various uh, criteria around investment stage and founders and levels of runway and cash flows and balance sheets and profitability and all of those all of those things
0: and fairly mature right
2: Uh, Yeah, well, the current fund is looking at fairly mature sort of late VC, early growth, if you like, companies that are not far away from profitability. So, yes, it's not early stage or seed stage investing by any means. It's filling a a gap that we saw in the market here where small to to mid cap style or or type businesses uh, need funding to grow rather than to prove up technology or start up technology or processes or manufacturing or, or whatever the business is. So that's, we, we set our guardrails on stage, but as I was saying earlier, our thesis around GHG emissions is quite broad in, it, in, in, in one sense, i.e., we will invest in businesses that achieve ultimately achieve GHG emissions reduction outcomes, but it has to come from businesses that operate in one of four sectors. Their sectors that we're focused on, where we've got experience in, that we think we can drive significant profitability when we invest and then drive significant outcomes when it comes to the GHG piece. You could those four sectors we can talk about there. We believe we're making change and we can get great deal flow in the energy transformation vertical, carbon environmental markets, waste and circular businesses that really focused on sort of packaging solutions for the most part, or even um, uh, other products that come from sustainable resources. We're looking at some interesting kind of seaweed to plastics businesses at the moment, and then food systems. We can look at all of these things across those sectors and that's where our specialisation comes in. It's really a quite traditional approach to VC or PE investing that we undertake. There's no difference with us or any of the other VC firms out there or PE managers out there. Uh, We do the same thing in terms of deal flow. The opportunity set for us is not limited in any way, shape or form based on what we've said. We've got those four sectors and others having to rapidly transform and decarbonise whether we like it or not or believe it or not. It has to happen.
0: Yeah, very good. And Jody, going from investment approach to, to the impact measurement and management approach that's really the the core of what this podcast series is about and you're yeah, really keen to hear about the Kalara approach to IMM and how it's evolved
1: so we've we've got a um, we use Standard tools that are um, broadly broadly in use in the market, things like the Iris Plus taxonomy, um, you know, the the norms developed uh, through the great work of the Impact Management Project. The nice thing about a taxonomy like like Iris Plus is it, um, you know, it's aligning with the other with all of the other things that people are thinking about from a measurement and disclosure point of view. So th- this is information that a lot of businesses either have already needed needed or will need going forward um, because as far as I'm concerned, impact information is just performance information. And so helping businesses understand that, make better use of the information that they have and m- make sure that that information is integrated, is integrated into strategy formation in a timely fashion, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't look at your balance sheet three years later and wonder whether or not you had money. This is ridiculous. Um, so we have the, we, we all have the capacity to think about this information, but there's been a, um, you know, in the earlier, um, earlier in the evolution of, of thinking about impact, you know, it was something sustainability sat in the marketing department, right? So it was something that you used mainly for external communication to make people feel good. it wasn't then that information wasn't integrated into strategy. Um, and I think I think going forward, this is something that businesses across the board are going to need to do, right? The demand the demand is there. the regulations are coming into place that are causing that. Um, but there's pretty limited capacity. Uh, and this is you know one of the ways that, in which we work with our investees is actually just developing that capacity to make better use of information and be an evidence led business so that you can be strategic, evidence led. Impactful, right? So you're doing things that actually matter, and then look at doing those things effectively, because it's really easy to focus on thing, you know, doing doing things that don't matter really well, and then what you're doing still doesn't matter. (laughs) Um, and you know, when 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 Ben was talking about the the verticals, there's you know, part of that is limited by or or shaped by the capacities and and experience that our team has, but part of it is also shaped by you know, we look at the evidence, and these are actually the the most significant drivers that we could tackle uh, in terms of where we need to make change. So we look at the evidence, pick things which are big and meaty, decide which of those we have the, you know, the, our particular team has the right, it, it, the, we're the right shape for that problem, <laughs> and then go hard on those rather than, uh, you know, just picking anything that seems slightly impactful and doing that because then you could just have lots of little like oh that's nice doesn't actually make much difference but people feel good about it and that's kind of a distraction and really in the face of climate change we don't we don't have time for that
0: and from your perspective head of impact looking after the, this flow of information pulling it together into a, a suite of impact frameworks so that you can then report on to your stakeholders tell me about that evolution of those systems in the past we've heard a lot about that the alphabet super frameworks that lots of different groups are using lots of different systems and that it can be quite overwhelming and as you said at the beginning there you found a set that you think of being broadly used and i think right now we're at a moment where there does seem to be some consistency in that do you think we've we've evolved to that point
1: So in the last kind of five years, and this is why organizations like the Impact Management Project were convened as a field building exercise, there's been a big convergence uh, to move away from this this Tower of Babel that was being built. Um, You know, your proprietary framework is not a secret sauce, it's a hindrance. (laughs) Because when we're speaking the same language... Uh, in the same way that we speak in accounting frameworks. And it's really great that we got, you know, the the standard setters and the accountants involved um, (laughs) so that we could actually have information that is, you know, it's credible, it's balanced, it's material. You can deliver it in ways that are comparable so that people who are using that information, whether we're using it internally, whether businesses are using it internally for management, investors are using it to, you know, choose between investments Um, that information is in a standard, in a somewhat standardized form. There's always going to be a trade-off between what's material for a given company. You're like, oh, actually we need this. We've got five business lines and we really need to calculate that across all five. Okay, cool. But let's roll that up. It's calculated at that level, roll it up. Um, you know, so the goal at any, at any level is having decision worthy information, right? So, can we have information that's useful for the businesses internally and not just useful, but is used? And that's the integration with strategy piece. Um, if you're just measuring it and not doing anything with it, you're missing 80% of the point. Um, and, but they also can be aggregated and there's standard ways of aggregating it so that people who are using that information further down the, you know, the, the impact chain, whether that's a, whether that's a fund manager, whether that's a fund of funds, um, that information maintains, because it's in a standardized format, maintains integrity and people know what they're seeing. And that also, um, you know, sets us up for one of the other things that's happening in the field, which is a move toward uh, verification, you know, sort of third-party auditing, um, the kind of work that that people like Bluemark are driving. Um, and that's, you know, from the from the accountant's uh point of view um that's kind of the the gold standard i think i think for me i'm seeing in the field a bit of a uh a bit of a catch-22 which is that there's uh around verification which is that there's a demand for it because when we look at financial information of course it's been audited um but there's demand for it at the aggregate level but nobody seems to care that much just yet, at least in the, in the local private equity space about having it at the, at the lower level. So, you know, as with any market, when there is increased demand, you know, when the institutional investors, for instance, start saying, we're only going to play if, if this is verified, then you'll have more managers verifying, you know, and that. but that's, We've had we've been doing double entry bookkeeping for what four hundred years? No, uh, no, nope, nope, six hundred years. Like we've we've had a good head start on the financial side. Um, in the climate side, we have had thirty years of you know really trying to get an understanding. Arguably, you know people have been measuring that for over a hundred years. But we are able to build on what we've learned in other parts of accounting to understand what good information looks like and how to use it effectively. So with every iteration, um, we are getting, I think, better better at that because we don't have to do it from first principles. We're able to build on what we already know. And that's how this part of how this convergence has been really important is there's no point having everybody around the world trying to solve the same problem on their own. That's just inefficient and ineffective.
0: And Ben, taking that further, you've set impact performance goals and you're standing behind it by linking fund returns to that impact performance so tell us about the hurdles you've set yourself
2: yeah so we uh we've set out a system whereby we uh we're assessing where each of the companies are at from a baseline point of view and that takes some time some of the companies in the fund have only been in there a little while so our first crack at this was uh just the financial year gone by so it's actually longer than just going by almost halfway through the next one, uh, and we assessed at a baseline level what these companies were doing uh, from a, a number of different points of view, particularly around carbon CO2E, so carbon dioxide equivalent uh, mitigation. We looked at uh, megawatt hours of renewable energy. We looked at kilograms of plastics avoided from oceans and a range of other things that, that were drawn from the Iris Plus metrics. And what we said to ourselves, well, we're going to set on an on, on a rolling basis targets that are, are meaningful and that are somewhat stretch in order to achieve the performance that we want from a from an impact point of view. So we're setting those targets as we get appropriate baselines for each of the companies, and then rolling that up to a fund level performance target. That's relatively new to do something like that. It's also relatively uncommon to then link that to your standard performance fee entitlements as a manager, which we've done. If we don't achieve uh, a certain threshold of our impact target, we don't get paid our full financial carry as a manager. And we sort of scaled that down uh, uh, at, to, to various thresholds, such that if we don't achieve 40, 60 or 80% of our, our impact targets, that influences our financial carry that we get. One of the key things where we're now that that's emerged and that we've now committed to is to try to achieve double the outcomes that are set by the paris agreement in terms of ghg emissions mitigation year on year in order to get to a 1.5 degree world if you back solve that to how many emissions reductions you need or how much emissions reductions you need on a year-on-year rolling basis it's about 7.5 percent so across the economy we need to effectively mitigate seven and a half percent year on year from a co2e point of view we've said okay well we want to Set a stretchier target than that. We are going to aim for a fifteen percent year-on-year mitigation outcome for our fund. That's double Paris, and that if we get there across our economy, we'll we'll get to hopefully a, either a one point five degree world in time or slightly lower than that. That would be fantastic. So we're trying to set a model and a benchmark for others to follow, and we're putting our money where our mouth is or our impact where our mouth is by linking that to our return hurdles. That's the bigger more global goal. When I say global, the Kalara global goal of 15% year on year, there are and may be some others that we set as we go through the next six months, and therefore can look back at where those companies are at and what they're able to achieve, because you've got to set targets that you can achieve financially, and then you've got to set realistic targets that you can achieve from non financial metrics. So it, again, it comes back to that same premise. We're not reinventing the wheel here on what we're talking about. We're just putting other data and assessing other externalities as part of our process something that can be done because you can quantify some of these externalities you can quantify how many tons of carbon it takes to do ABCDRE. you can quantify how many kilograms of plastic are going into the ocean and try and stop it and you can quantify how many hours of clean energy you're generating or, or enabling and amongst a whole range of other things. so that's really important for us we want quantifiable climate related outcomes that we can track and then we're just applying the same version of of assessment and reporting across that that we do for your traditional financial metrics.
0: I think that's really important th- this idea of quantifiable metrics and a very capitalist approach, right? A very a very clear financial incentive to drive that impact. But of course in finance it comes down to the dollars and the cents. Has that evolved and yeah, where do the data points come from?
2: yeah, it's definitely evolved and it's not it's not necessarily simple in the first instance the the framework is relatively straightforward is what I'm getting at. then to pull it all in and then to to start to 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 assess which of those metrics are relevant for what we do in 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 private equity investing or venture investing uh, is, is not as straightforward because you've got a number of different things that you could talk to when it comes to uh, comparing returns. So when we come when we talk about comparing returns, financial returns, we know what they are, where there's set parameters and protocols that investors will look at when they want to assess whether they're going to invest with you. What's your track record on delivering IRR? What's your track record on delivering cash yield? What's your track record on delivering multiples on your money? All very commonly known. And if you've got a good enough track record, people might back you and and trust that you're going to achieve those financial returns. Where we're at now in, in the space around quantifiable climate outcomes, and measuring them and 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 again getting the same types of ubiquitous uh, metrics that people can look at so let's take three irr money multiple and cash distributions and say what are the what are the most relevant three from a climate point of view we started to hone in on that so we're talking about things like what what is your carbon intensity per dollar of equity invested what is your carbon intensity per dollar of revenue generated from those portfolio companies and then you start to get a level or a measure or a gauge of carbon intensity of your investment from an equity point of view or a revenue point of view. Then you can start to, um, if you like, uh, normalize what those metrics look like across different businesses, i.e. it's standardized. What is an IRR? An IRR is a calculation of the return that you're getting. Uh, time value of money is included in that, and then you can figure out um, how you calculate that. There's a formula for that over time. And, and there's your number. The same, the same thing applies, not from a time based, time value of money point of view, but the same thing applies if you're able to get the data in, because you know how much CO2 are have offset. You know how much your revenues are. That's pretty simple. You know how much money you've put in there. So the formula is simple. So I'm getting back to the formula is really simple, because you can measure carbon, you can measure how many dollars you put in. Getting the data from the companies is not so simple. Landing on which of the relevant metrics that can be applied across a sector is not so simple. But we're having a go at it, and we think we're getting close. And, and we're seeing actually others out there starting to talk about that. What is your CO2E intensity per dollar of revenue or CO2 intensity per dollar of equity or CO2 intensity per, um, per point of IRR? There's another interesting one. And then you really hmm. start to, 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 to measure them together. Uh, we're getting there. And I think uh, next year's report, which will be the second uh, annual report for the fund and impact report, will start to bring those together. And say, so, okay, we're starting to get a bit of a trajectory here. And then we'll reassess, John, whether we think they're the right metrics. We might change some of the things we look at. We'll get feedback from from others, and hopefully by the sort of you know year three or so, we're we're out there with the others, um, and even as Jodie said earlier, even out there with the banks and the ratings agencies and, and the other really important stakeholders here, talking to them about this, and maybe we can contribute to uh, some form of taxonomy or global standard that sits there and and gets rolled out over the coming generations.
0: And Jodie, Ben mentioned there. The impact report you released the inaugural report a few months ago and with this broad suite of metrics it all comes down to can you make comparisons with peers and maybe even a global benchmark you use the the compass model from gin you tell us about that process
1: one of the fantastic things that the global impact investing network has done is they've convened large stakeholder groups of people to work on specific problems Right. Uh, So one of the one of the things that they've developed, uh, I think they only released that um, in early 2021 uh, was, well, how do we what is the methodology that we would use to compare impact? Basically, Uh, how would we normalize that? Because, you know, if someone's looking at investments, they don't have to know the formula for IRR. They have a general idea of what IRR means and everybody's putting it up there and you can just compare A, B and C. And so you know, right now there's the field is still settling on what's, what's meaningful and what's like agreed. And so that's been a really important move in that space. However, there's, there's also an education piece as, as norms change. You know, if you roll back five years, people weren't talking about CO2E because we had to like educate the market, what that meant. Well, what do you mean? I can't compare nitrous oxide with carbon dioxide. And people like me say, well, actually <laughs> that is a scientific problem we can give you a formula for that um and now that's and now that's fairly normalized so now we're, we're, we're working on getting that way in um in comparing different forms of impact in the same way so that's what i was uh that's one of the things i was doing in the in the impact report the interesting thing about about you know the impact report given that i am we're we welcome impact agnostic investors and people who just want to make green investment and not deal with the data too much, and people who want to go really deep in the data is I recognize you might put out a 40 page report and most people are going to, you know they might read the commentary at the beginning, look at the first two pages and then not like flip through and just say, oh, that looks that looks okay. That looks rigorous." <laughs> um, and that's absolutely fine. Um, but I wanted to go deep in that information for the people who are on that journey. And show that it's, show that it's possible, show that, you know, if you want to go down that path, you can go down that path with us. Um, And also, you know, put a bit of a, put a bit of a stake in the market on what I think we should be doing from a best practice perspective. It's, you know, that's always a bit, um, it's a bit risky. And some things there's a, you know, there's a first mover disadvantage. Uh, But I think that with, you know, I'm I'm pro transparency in general. Uh, There's lots of, There's lots of problem in the world to go around. Um, so I don't have to be, I don't have to be greedy and say that I'm the only one and I'm going to keep to myself exactly how I'm, you know, trying to address climate change. I want everyone to have better data and to be able to look transparently at what's working. And I want them to come to us because they can see that what we're doing is
0: working. As you say, you guys are at the Vanguard, you're working with the global evolution of the industry, and there are some benchmarks that have a certain metric. And I imagine you then have the database that you can work with. What do you hope in the next, in the short term, I guess, in the next few years for the next report in two years time, what do you really hope to be able to compare your performance to what would make your job easier in building that model?
1: So one of the things that we do in on the financial side is of course there's benchmarks there's benchmarks for everything and the way you develop benchmarks is you have a lot of data and so you have enough diversity within the data that you can carve it into tiny boxes with similar characteristics this is how we compare things in there is more demand for impact data than there has been Willingness to supply because people either don't know how to do it or they're uncomfortable about putting their numbers out there. They don't know if they're good enough. So the GIN has actually convened a process around a few things using the Compass method, um, in particular domain areas to say let's get a bunch of let's get, get a bunch of investors who are doing this to actually put their data together, and we will build a proto benchmark. So that's what they're working toward: is can we get enough data? Can we understand well enough what is both material, but also possible and and widespread. Not everybody's going to have a Rolls Royce solution. So, you know, we might need to have the most general kinds of data that we're actually benchmarking and then have things that sit underneath that. But so right now, um, I was I was grateful that last year they published, the Jin published one of the first reports, I think it was probably the fourth report out of that series, which is on other climate change mitigation investments. So we have a little bit of a benchmark, it's the best thing we have in the market currently on what other people doing exactly this thing and measuring exactly the same thing are actually achieving. Uh, and we, ha- we can break it down by, you know, whether it's a private equity instrument or a debt instrument, or it's in an emerging market or a developed market. And relative to the other private equity investments, we're doing very well. Um, and we feel really good about that. And we, we highlighted that in our report. And, you know, people do that all the time in, in benchmarks, and it's just taken for granted in, in the financial information, it's taken for granted that you have a benchmark and you say, this is how we performed. And in fact, you might set your targets relative to a benchmark. You know, your, any of your super funds will say, this is this is what we're planning to achieve. Without that information in the market, we have to be the ones that create that information and put it into the market.
0: That's right. No, I think that's taken for granted that in other industries, th- this data and these baselines are all there and they have long histories, right? As you said, hundreds of years in financial accounting, but we're very much at the early nascent stages of this. And that's really the point here is to dig in to where the space is going and the fact that you're there working hard to find, you know, the skericks of data you can and, and work with it. And that that's the seed that will then grow going forward. But look, Ben, we're running out of time here, but let's talk about your particular approach at the moment, companies you're interested in. For the private equity fund, you've invested in four companies so far. You have a bit of dry powder there. What are some big opportunities that are on the horizon that you're looking at that are getting you excited?
2: Yeah, there's one in the uh, it's called seaweed to plastics space, which is super exciting. There's quite a few technologies around and processes around which have enabled the creation of certain materials with the use of seaweed. This one in particular is, I think, taking things another step beyond that, which is which is super exciting. Uh, there's some great technology that that sits behind that one. Uh, and the solution set or the problem that the solution is aiming to, to to resolve is enormous when it comes to virgin plastics. As As we know, it's almost indescribable. The the plastic waste problem that we have globally And there are enormous amount of top-down pressures to resolve that. Again, goes back to the original positioning. This is uh, not about trying to seek out green or impact deals. This is about trying to scale opportunities for which there are societal issues that need to be resolved and where there are fundamental top-down pressures that are being brought to bear. It's a market shift. It's a market change. Where are the opportunities that happens every time there's a shift in markets? This happens every time there's a shift in approach to investing through tech bubbles, through financial bubbles, through tech 2.0 and clean tech. There's always been these big changes in the way that markets have worked. That will continue, we're responding to it and and, and trying to solve problems there. So so again, it just comes back to that point about trying to solve big problems. Um, the, the other one that's also exciting is in the uh, sequestration space, where we need to enable continual improvements to our carbon sinks around the world. How do we do that? Planting trees is one way of doing it. We've seen some pretty, pretty amazing new patented and technology, Australian technology and hardware that might facilitate the rapid deployment of significant numbers of, of seedlings to then grow into, go into bigger trees that are either endemic or native or suited to the environment that they're, that they're going into. So that's very important for us. No point just going and planting mono, mono crops or monocultured uh, trees or any other crops where you need to promote biodiversity. So these guys have sorted out a version where they do a lot of work around what's native to the area or what's going to improve biodiversity in degraded areas in particular. So the application there could be for mine sites, could be for corporates wanting to, to, to plant trees. It could be for, uh, major government initiatives, long highways, all sorts of things where we need to promote increased biodiversity, increased sequestration, increased green amenity. There's a whole range of things that are exciting about those. So there's two um, uh, that, are, that are super exciting and, uh, you know, we're seeing lots of deals come into the pipeline and um, we're excited about that too. The opportunity set's pretty large.
0: And Jody, what's your view there on, on exciting technologies and opportunities? You're, you're, you're part of the same beehive, you know, you're, you're probably all aligned with that hive mind, but um, yeah.
1: On the plastics side, you know, one of the, one of the, um, uh, you know, the kind of holy grail for some of these things or any kind of low carbon technologies is, can we have a drop in solution that allows people to simply, you know, take out something that's really problematic and drop in something else without having too many other uptake challenges so that the users of those technologies don't have to have, don't have to do a whole retooling because that's where a lot of the resistance is. Because then it's adding expense to them and so they're like, Oh yeah, sustainability, it's expensive. It doesn't have to be expensive.
2: So the exact example there is where you say instead of having virgin plastic pellets go into a moulding or extrusion machine that exists that exists all over the world at scale, you just drop in a different type of pellet, don't change the machine, and you've got this completely enhanced solution without virgin plastics, completely renewable resource, it's then biodegradable, it comes out the other side. To Jody's point, you're not retooling, you're not changing your manufacturing process. There's no capital expenditure. You just take away that virgin rubbish and put in this lovely seaweed product.
1: Yeah, so it's like it's something that's got a tight problem solution fit for all for all the stakeholders involved, and that's like that's the sweet spot.
0: Amazing. Oh, look, and then we so just incredible. you know
1: apply apply you know money and and love and help that grow, just scale that impact as we're scaling that business.
2: Not a bad not a bad spot to end on that roundabout was it John the honey turning into the sweet spot
0: <laughs> money and love money and love yeah let's leave it there but what I do want to give my listeners is a book recommendation from you guys something that has informed your work or maybe even just something that's on the on the bedside table
2: so one that I'm almost through is atomic habits most people well, a lot of people would have heard about atomic habits it's a great book um there's another one which i'm going to quickly look at my phone to ascertain what it is it's a book that i'll tell you about when jody tells you hers Go on. Uh, um
1: so one of the ones that i just finished recently um is called called 4 weeks um so uh the author whose name is currently vanished from my mind so i'll just keep going <clears throat> uh was a uh a columnist for one of the newspapers looking at all the productivity systems and started thinking about the, reflecting on the nature of our fixation with productivity. Um, And, you know, the thesis here is like, look, we've only got the average human lifespan is 4,000 weeks, right? You can't do everything. You should actually be relieved to know that you can't do everything. It's okay if you didn't get it done. Focus on the things that actually, you know, are creating the things that are meaningful that when you think about the life you want to have led, the things that make you feel more connected, the things that make you feel more purposeful, more of that and less of the busy work. And that actually like underpins a lot of my, a lot of my career is, you know, how do I do things which are more materially meaningful rather than just turning the crank on things?
2: Yeah, but the, the, the other one that I was thinking about was a book by Jonathan Porritt. who's a very uh, well-credentialed author in the climate space been writing about environmental solutions and 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 how we can how we can look to solve it for a while this latest one from him is called hope in hell uh how we can confront the climate crisis and save the earth hope in hell so we might want to borrow that we do have a hope in hell i haven't started reading it but (laughs) i just got it
0: oh very good great tips there and thanks for all the insights today i think there's some really practical stuff there going forward and puzzling how this impact space is growing and that's all pretty exciting honey money and love love it
2: Good one, thanks a lot
0: John. All right, cheers guys.
1: Always a pleasure.